Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. And we are going to begin there in about chapter 15. We're actually going to cover a good bit of ground tonight, I believe. But uh, a little bit of background, what we are working through at the moment is I've entitled this series, Jesus B.C. We are looking at Jesus uh, and forms and pictures and types in the Old Testament, as well as salvation in the Old Testament, because a lot of people have this uh, false idea that somehow people got saved different in the Old Testament. They think somehow that the Old Testament people were saved by their works, and in the New Testament they were saved by grace. And we find that Old Testament, New Testament alike, uh, people were saved by grace through faith. And uh, there's no difference in it. The only difference is that uh, the cross was ahead of them and it's behind us. And so as we look through this, we've seen Adam and Eve, that they by faith believed God and it was counted for them, to them for righteousness. Uh, Abel believed God, Cain didn't. We've looked at Noah. I'm not sure if there was anyone between Adam and Eve and Noah. I don't believe there was. Anyway, <laughs> the other one that's teaching us, I don't either. But anyway, uh, then uh, we looked at Noah, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it wasn't because of his works, it was because of his faith. And so God revealed to him there is going to be a, uh, a punishment. There is going to be a uh, judgment upon this earth, and I'm offering you a way to escape it. And Noah says, I'll take you up on your offer. Right. And so he was justified not by works of righteousness, which he had done, but by his faith. And we've continued on through that. We looked at Abraham, and we saw that he was a picture of a normal Christian, or what should be a normal Christian. A lot of times we look at him and we think of him as being some kind of super spiritual guy because of how prominent he is in Scripture. But if you actually study his life, you find that he was pretty average, pretty ordinary. Uh, he heard about God. Uh, God revealed himself to him, and he began uh, learning about God, and they started following God, and he made mistakes. He made some pretty horrible blunders, and God continued dealing with him, revealing himself to him, drawing him closer to him. Every time he messed up, God came back with reassurance because it never was based on Abraham's uh, works. It was never based upon uh, the things that he was doing. It was based upon his belief in who God was. And so Abraham would mess up and God would come in and say, remember, I made a promise to you. I'm still holding up my end of the deal, even though you've messed up. And so there's restoration that takes place over and over again. And we see that uh, all along that Abraham's kind of making a step up and he plateaus, he falls back, but he's, he's on an upward trajectory. And by the time he gets to the end of his life, he is extremely close to God. He is uh, very secure in his relationship with God. And he is walking by faith so much that whenever at the end of his life, whenever God says, I want you to take your son Isaac up onto the top of the mountain and sacrifice him. He says, okay, this is extremely difficult, but God, I trust you. And if you have me to do this, you've made promises that that boy's got to be alive for. So if you make me kill him, you have to bring him back to life. Mm -hmm. Now that's some faith. <laughs> and we look at it and we think, okay, um, we see some times in the Bible where people came back to life. Of course, Jesus resurrected, but at Abraham's time, that had never happened before. Right. It wasn't something that was common knowledge to Abraham. It was like, oh yeah, God's done this before, he'll do it again. 
It was like, there's no other option. If I kill him, this is the fulfillment of God's promises, and God will not lie to me. So God, if I strike him dead, you've got to bring him back from the death, or from the dead. That's faith. But, you know, that's also the fruit of a lifetime of following. Right. Because if you would have went back... 20 years prior to that, or 50 years prior to that, you would have got a different response. Yeah. And so that's comforting to me as well as a Christian because he doesn't expect uh, baby Christian me or uh, adolescent or teenager or whatever Christian me. I'm not talking about age-wise, but I'm talking about development-wise as a Christian. He's not expecting uh, Abraham and Isaac and Moriah faith from Abraham that just left Ur of the Chaldees. Right? So there's a process of growth here. And God is not unreasonable. God is not going to put that upon you. Now, a lot of people will say, God will not put on you more than you're able to bear. That's not biblical. God will put more on you than you're able to bear. But he does that so you turn back to him and trust him to bring you through it. Trust him to bear it. Okay? I just had to put that out there so you didn't think I was going that direction. And so anyway, we saw that with Abraham. And then we went to Lot. And so if Abraham is your average Christian, Lot was your carnal Christian. And Lot is a proof from beginning to end that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, and it's not by rituals, it's not by religion, it's nothing else that we have done. It is only by God's grace through the faith that we place in him that anyone is ever saved because Lot, from the beginning to the end, was a carnal Christian. He believed in the God that Abraham was following, and he was able to leave what he was doing and follow after him. And he believed God, but not enough to walk close with him. He still was, his heart was still tight in this world. And so whenever he had a choice, do I stick around here with Abraham and continue to be sped, uh, fed spiritually? Excuse me. My mouth is outrunning my brain here. Do I stay here with Abraham and continue to be fed spiritually? Do I continue to fellowship spiritually? Or do I part ways with Abraham and go down to the well-watered plains of Jordan and camp out, pitch my tent near Sodom so that I am able to prosper in this world? And so he forsakes the ways of God for fat cattle, right? And he ends up sacrificing his entire family for it and even some portion of his sanity, because it says that he was vexed with the filthy conversations of the wicked. Okay, And so there was a lot of things that happened because of that. And so we found out that a person can be saved by faith, but their walk not necessarily reflected. See, it's not that our works is what saves us. And so he still walked carnally, he still walked sinfully, but he also reaped the consequences of that. So for any Christian who is a child of God, they're not going to be able to live worldly successfully. It will have a cost. Okay, we talked about that a little bit Sunday. And so today we're going to be going back to Isaac. And so this is kind of in the middle of this whole story between Abraham and Lot. We find peppered in here Isaac, and I've already referenced to him with Abraham just because their lives are so uh, intertwined with one another. And so we'll be looking at both of them a little bit tonight, but our focus will be on Isaac. And so just to get us started, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter number 15 of Genesis. It says, after these things, after what things? This is after Abraham has left Ur of the Chaldees. He came uh, through Haran. He ended up in Bethel. Uh, Him and Lot parted their ways. 
Lot uh, got carried off, and Abraham had to go and rescue him. After all of these things, okay? Uh, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham, or Abram, in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So he had just turned down the riches that were offered to him by the kings of Sodom. Okay? He says, I don't want to be enriched by you guys, the ones that Lot was seeking to be enriched by. Okay, He says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You passed up their riches. That's okay. You don't need them because I'm able to provide for you everything that you need. Verse 2, it says, Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth and uh, brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And so here we have a promised seed. Abraham is looking at God and says, Okay, God, you said you are my reward. You are going to multiply me. You're going to give me a land. You have already enriched me. But what good does it do me, considering that I go childless? What good does it do me to receive all these blessings and all these promises if I have no one to pass them on to? And this is what he asked God. He says, I'm just planning right now. I'm getting older. My wife is barren. And whenever I die, my servants are going to get my stuff. And so he says, God, all these great promises that you've given me doesn't seem to really be worth much right now. Because he can't see the end picture. He can't see what God is working out in his life. We're talking about it some 1,500 or 2,000 years later. And we understand what God ended up doing through Abraham. But Abraham's still looking at it and saying, God, I have no clue what you're doing. I am following you to the best of my ability. None of this makes sense, God. And so God says, your servant isn't going to be your heir. You're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, your descendants, your family, is going to be as the sand of the seashore. It's going to be as the stars of the heaven. If you can count them, if you can number them, you'll be able to number your offspring. And to Abraham, this seems pretty incredible. As a matter of fact, it seems downright ridiculous. But notice what it says in verse 6. He believed God. And so what he's doing, basically, he's going through his life and God is revealing himself. God is telling him these things. And he is taking God at his word. And he's saying, I don't understand it. I don't know how you're going to make it happen. But everything that you have told me so far has came true. So I'm trusting you to do this as well. And he is walking by faith. And going back to what I said about Abraham, it's a normal Christian life. We're not going to understand it. We're not going to see where it's going. We don't know what God has in store for five years from now, ten years from now, or tomorrow. But we're saying, okay, God, I'm putting my life in your hands. It's up to you, whatever you do. And I'm just going to continue serving you. I may mess up. I might do it sloppily. My faith may wane from time to time, but I'm going to continue the best of my ability, just letting you be God, and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to follow you. So this is what he's doing, and we have uh, him promised this seed, and we know that it's later going to be Isaac, okay? And the reason we're looking at Isaac tonight, whenever we're talking about Jesus B.C., 
or salvation in the Old Testament is that Isaac is one of the best pictures, one of the greatest pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's actually, I would put him as number two as far as pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Any idea who number one would be? See, I ask you questions as I drink my coffee. Joseph. Good job. Yeah. Not sure who's cheating off of who there. <laughs> okay, Joseph would be your number one. We'll get to him later. We haven't got that far yet. But Isaac would be number two. And we're going to look tonight at some of the parallels, some of the things that are connected between Jesus and Isaac, okay? And this verse that we've just read is the first one, or this passage we just read is the first one, because uh, Jesus was the promised son. He was the promised Messiah. From all the way back in Genesis chapter number three, there was a promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And from then on, mankind was looking because the curse of sin was upon them, and they were wanting someone to bruise the head of the devil, right? And so they were waiting for that seed of the woman, that promised seed, but time was going by and he wasn't appearing. The centuries was passing by and he still hadn't appeared. Everyone was looking, when is this child going to be born? When is the seed of the woman going to come? And they were waiting. And so with Abraham, he has a promise of God. And God says, you are going to have a child. You're going to have a seed. And of that seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, and so there's a connection between the one seed and the other seed because Jesus comes out of Isaac, right? But they run parallel to one another. And so this was a promised seed, but Abraham, remember we talked about he makes his share of mistakes, right? And so we come down to chapter number 16, and I told you we're going to cover a decent amount of ground tonight. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time and your attention, but in chapter number 16, it starts out, says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bear him no children. Hard to have children as the sand on the seashore and as the stars for multitude whenever his wife bears no children, right? And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Just a side note, you realize in chapter 12, Abraham didn't believe God for a season and he uh, tried to escape a famine. Where did he go to escape the famine? Egypt. So I wonder where he got an Egyptian handmaid from. Egypt. When he was out of God's will, right? And so anyway, uh, she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. There's red flags all over that. That is a trap. Abraham, run away, run away. But he didn't. And so anyway, this is that uh, a fleshly attempt on the part of Abraham and the part of Sarai. Because what happened is God says, I have given you a promise. I have given you a promise. But they had grown tired of waiting on the promise, and they attempted to get God's promises by carnal means, by fleshly means. And so what we see in this, I said that we're going to be doing parallels between Jesus and salvation in this story, right? And so there was a promise given, but there is an attempt to attain it by fleshly means. And so Hagar is a type of the law, and Ishmael 
is a type of trying to obtain salvation by the works of the law. Okay? Man's attempt at righteousness, man's attempt at attaining the promises of God, but not doing it God's way. And so Abraham says, okay, I'm going to go to Hagar. It makes sense. Sarah can't have children. And so God must mean I'm going to have seed with someone besides Sarah. And she's given me the blessing to have children with someone else. Right? What woman in her right mind's going to let him do that, right? <laughs> but it was a different culture at the time. Right. It was a different culture, and it was acceptable if the, if the bride was barren, then someone else could be basically her stand-in, her surrogate, okay? Yeah. And this was the idea. But they were saying, okay, I'm going to fix my problem by my own means, by my own thoughts. And mankind has been doing this with God as long as mankind has existed, right? Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to try to cover up their sin, try to get themselves right with God again, right? Man has always had their attempts. Today we have all sorts of religion. People are trying by their own good works and by their efforts and by religious rituals and all these different things, saying, okay, uh, God has offered salvation. He has given a promise and I am going to do the best I can by my means, by my reasoning, by my works, in order to obtain God's promises. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. God says, I only have one way. And man says, well, I'll see about that. I'll try something different, right? And so this is what Abraham has done. He says, okay, God has... Uh, told me about a promise. He's told me of something that I can receive. Now I've got to figure out how to get it myself. And that doesn't work, does it? And so if we continue ahead uh, to chapter number 17, go down to about verse number 15. It says, And God said unto Abram, or Abraham, he's changed his name by now. I've been using both names interchangeably, but I think you all understand, right? And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, uh, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. You ever laugh at God? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might stand before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And so it comes to pass that Abraham sees what God has presented as being impossible. He actually flat out laughs at God. He says, I'm 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. God, I don't know if you understand biology, but this isn't the way it happens. God says, I created biology, right? And so he says, oh, that Ishmael would stand before you. And basically what he's bargaining with God about here, he says, I have created a means. I have made my own way. I have used my own logic and reasoning. And out of the works of my flesh, I have brought forth a child. Surely you can accept him. And God says, no, 
There's no way that Ishmael can be the one that inherits the promise. There's no way the works of your flesh is going to be what I use to bring about my promise and my salvation to you. And so Ishmael is uh, flawed. Ishmael is not the one that God had, not the way that God had made or the way that he had intended. And so God tells him there has to be a new birth, right? There has to be a new birth. And so Abraham, if I bring this up to modern day application, Abraham comes to God and says, Surely the works of my hands, my religion, I was baptized on whatever day after I was born and I was brought up in church. I attended mass and I went to confession and I took the sacraments and I did all of these things, God. Surely this is good enough for you. And God says, scrap it all. None of that will work. That is your own methods. That is your own means. That is your own works. I have one way and you must be born again. That's what he tells him. It requires a new birth not one that is made out of the law or the works of the law, but instead one that comes by grace, one that is born of promise, one that comes out of miraculous impossibilities rather than one that comes out of man's workings and man's abilities and man's knowledge, right? So if we look at Ishmael and we look at Hagar, we can go up into the New Testament in Galatians chapter 4. I won't look at it just yet. But in Galatians chapter number 4, uh, Paul makes the same connection that I am. So if you just think I'm bringing this out of nowhere, uh, it's on the authority of God's word. Paul writes about that Hagar is the bondwoman and compares her to the law, right? We'll look at that here in just a minute a little bit more. But anyway, Hagar is the law. Ishmael is the workings of of the law by the flesh, by man's own efforts to obtain the promise. And God says, no, none of that will work. And so instead, he brings Sarah, who is past the age of childbearing, who has never had children, who it has been ruled by everyone that it is physically impossible for her to bear. And God says, I am going to do the impossible so that you know it is of me and not of you. It's nothing that you have done. I have intentionally waited until it is beyond man's comprehension of her being able to have children before I give her children. Now, if she would have been in her 60s, they would have said, well, that's stretching a little bit, but you know, it's... Yeah. But 90? <laughs> There's no question oh. there. They're like, yeah, that's not... Maybe, um, you know, thousands of years ago, we're not the, was it like 30 or 40 or something? Yeah. Maybe. Because yeah. you know the flesh became more corrupted. Yeah. yeah, but if you look at Abraham's time, he lived to be, I can't remember off the top of my head how old he ended up being, mm-hmm. but 140, 150. So probably that night we lived in the 40s. But if you think about him living to be an old man at 150, mm-hmm. If you think, okay, an old man at 80, yeah. right? You take half of that, 40 years old, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're if you not having children by the time you're 40, you better get going, right? Yeah. <laughs> another thing, Abraham was at all, above 100, mm-hmm. but he was, still, he was still able to do things that 
Someone in the 60s at this temple mm -hmm. right. cannot do. Right. So that tells you, I don't know, that, that's what is clicking. There is no better. Yeah, there was different times. Mm -hmm. yeah. How, I don't know how they were counting age at that mm -hmm. time, but yeah. But the thing that we do go back to, and we may not be able to quite grasp the difference in uh, lengths of lives and years and different things like that, but one thing that we can grasp is that Abraham and Sarah both saw it as impossible. Okay, yeah, that's, that makes sense. They both saw it as impossible. They're like, no, this is way past. Yeah. Whenever God first came to Abraham, Abraham was around 70, and he's like, okay, God, you better get to work. Because <laughs> Sarah was like 60, and he said, okay, she's going to have a child. He's like, okay, well, that's that's doable. I mean, uh, she's getting older, but that's still doable. But now, by the time that she is 90, right. he's like, God... You're 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 really taking too much on yourself. Let's just let's just compromise and go with Isaac. Go ahead, or not Isaac, with Ishmael. And so, whatever there is about it, Abraham and Sarah both clearly thought it was well past it. Okay, I think I'm trying to remember if it was uh, if it was Abraham and Sarah or if it was Zachariah and Elizabeth that it says that they had already ceased to be together in the manner of women. So they had already um, went like 1960s television. They got the se separate twin beds in the in the bedroom. They're no longer even sleeping in the same bed. They've they've ceased to be together, you know. Yeah. And uh, so he says it's it's impossible, right? And God clearly shows him that with God, nothing is impossible. Right. And so Abraham says, "Just let the works of my hands, let my way of doing things." be enough for me to lay hold on your promises. And God says, no, that'll never be enough. I'm never going to accept the carnal way, the fleshly way. I'm never going to accept man's works and his righteousness, that it's going to have to be something that I do miraculously to where there's no question that it wasn't you, that it was me, right? And we've seen this as we've studied each of these characters in the Old Testament, that God was always bringing about something impossible, showing us clearly that it wasn't man that merited salvation. It wasn't man that made it happen. And so whenever God decided to bring about Isaac, whenever he decided to fulfill this promise to Abraham, he made sure that the whole world knew that it wasn't Abraham and Sarah doing it, but it was something special, it was something miraculous. And time after time, God makes it plain that he rejects, completely rejects the works of our own hands to merit his promises, his blessings, and his gifts. Okay? So the Old Testament makes it clear that they weren't saved by their works. As we get up into the law and whenever the law comes, that's where it gets foggy for a lot of people. And they're like, but they had to keep the law. Right? I'm not going to get into that just yet. We'll get into it later on in, the, in a different study. But even the keeping of the law didn't save anyone. If you need a little extra proof for that, look at the state of religion in Jesus' day. You had the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of the religious elites that made it their business to keep the law to the letter. Right. On the outside. Now, inside, they were graves filled with dead men's bones, right? Right. But on the outside, they kept the law to the letter. They even made it more difficult to keep just to make it a challenge. Okay? Yeah. And Jesus told them plainly that they were of their father, the devil. 
So the keeping of the law and all of those religious works has never saved a single individual because the Bible clearly tells us that all of our all of our righteousnesses, all of our best works are as filthy rags. They are still tainted by our flesh, by our pride, by our sin. And so they won't work. Okay? So uh, with that, we have Abraham now. He's been uh, promised. He tried to bring about God's promises by his own means. God told him that will not work. He rejected it outright and said, I still, yes, you messed up, but you're still my child. Mm -hmm. And he says, and I'm going to give you a son through impossible means, just so you know I'm God and I'm good and I can do it. And so Sarah becomes pregnant with a child. And now, because of his flesh, because of Ishmael, right, there is problems in paradise. Okay? And so the flesh and the spirit is always going to be in conflict. And so in Abraham's house, he saw this play out with Ishmael and Isaac, with Sarah and Hagar. And honestly, he made for himself a lot bigger mess than he wished he would have. But that's the same thing that happens whenever we try to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh. We make stupid decisions. We uh, create problems for ourselves, and God can still use us. He still loves us. He forgives us of our every sin and unrighteousness that we do. But sometimes we make our road harder than it has to be. And that's what Abraham does here. And so we come on up here just a little bit further uh, to chapter number 17. I read a minute ago, didn't I? 15 through 19. And so he promises that Sarah is going to be uh, the mother of this promise. But he does say that Ishmael is going to become a nation, and that nation ends up being a a thorn in the side of Isaac's people, right? And so Ishmael's descendants and uh, Jacob's descendants end up constantly in battle with one another. But... Let's see here. Let's go ahead and uh, skip forward to verse or to chapter number twenty-one in chapters um, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. We have everything going on with Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah, and all of that. But whenever we get to chapter twenty-one, uh, this promise that God has given is fulfilled. Uh, in the passages that we skipped, the angel comes. And tells Abraham and Sarah that in the according to the time of life that they would return and uh, they would have a son, right? And Sarah laughed in her tent. Remember that part? But in chapter number 21, Isaac is born. Verse number one, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now I've got underlined in my Bible that as he had said, God keeps his word. He says, I'm going to do it. He did it, right? And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the time, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bore unto him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, 
so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne a son in his old age, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And so the promised seed has finally arrived, not according to man's ways, not according to man's time, but just the way that God had said that it would happen, just according to how God wanted it to happen. And if we were to continue on with this, that whenever they are celebrating the weaning of Isaac, it would have probably been whenever he was between three and five years old. Okay? And so whenever they were celebrating the weaning of Isaac, uh, Sarah looks over, and Ishmael is mocking Isaac. He is making fun of Isaac. And this is what I was referring to earlier, that the flesh and the spirit are at odds one with the other. And so there is a battle that takes place between our flesh and our spirit. But in the next uh, several verses there, it says that Abraham is to cast out the bondwoman and her son. Because they are not to inherit with Isaac, they are not to be in his house. And this would have put Ishmael up being around 18 years old, 16 to 18 years old. So it's not like he was throwing out a, a little child and a single mother here. It's like, okay, Ishmael is raised, he has grown, and it's time for him and his mom to leave. And according to the customs and the culture at that time, uh, if a man bore a child with his servant, that the, the child was entitled to an inheritance from him. Or the man could also give him and the mother their freedom in place of that. Okay, So it's still sticking with the culture and customs of the time. But God says, it's okay, Abraham, go ahead and send them off because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And so why is this significant for us? I said the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. To bring it up to modern times, uh, whenever a person gets saved, they do it by receiving of God's promise God's way, right? Right. That there comes a time that there's going to be that battle between the flesh and the spirit, and the bondwoman needs to be thrown out. The Bible says in the New Testament and Paul's writings that we are to uh, we are to uh, What's the words I'm looking for? We are to reckon ourselves to be dead, our flesh to be dead, right? We are to put off the old man and to put on the new, right? Yield not unto the flesh, but yield unto the spirit. And this is what we see going on here, is that there is this putting off of Ishmael and the deeds of the flesh so that he could pursue after the new birth, the child of the Spirit, right? And so this is taking place. Not only that, if we go back about halfway between us and Abraham, we have the cross. And we're going to get to it a little bit more later. But we said that Ishmael and Hagar represented the law and the works of the flesh. And whenever Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, and he did away with the law, right? And so whenever he came, he cast out the bondwoman and her son. And so do you see how none of this was an afterthought to God? Whenever we think about the cross, when we think of salvation, none of it was an afterthought because we see that God repeatedly played this out in Old Testament, showing us, laying out a path 
over and over and over and over again saying, this is how I work. This is how it was supposed to be. This is how salvation is received. This is how far your works of your flesh go. This is what it takes to have a relationship with me, that it is always by his grace and our faith, not our works, not our abilities, not all of these different rituals and things that we think should work. He says it's always the same way. And so you can attempt by the works of your flesh to try to earn salvation, but there comes a point in time where you have to turn away from all of that. You have to cast it aside and you have to embrace Christ and embrace Christ alone. And that's what we see pictured here. And so he had to turn away from the works of his own flesh. He had to throw out the bondwoman because in Isaac shall his name be called, right? Okay, so we need to keep going here. Uh, I'll go ahead and turn over to Galatians. I referenced it earlier. Robert, I know you have a bus to catch, so if you need to go, just whenever, okay? That way you don't have to worry about what everybody thinks either. They already know what you're doing. Like, oh, he got mad and left. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to stay for the rest of the book. I'll just have to ask the pastor on Sunday. Wow. It'll be online. Okay. Okay, Galatians chapter number four. And verse number 21. This way you know I'm not bringing these things out of my own head. I'm not pulling them out of somewhere. I'm 21, it says, uh, Tell me the desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, and by one, or one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. So this is what we're looking at. We're looking at allegories. We're looking at pictures, portraits, types in the Old Testament, right? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which, is, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Okay? And so Paul makes it pretty clear the things that I've been saying. And so anyway, um, that brings us down to chapter 22. And this is where we'll finish tonight. I think. Chapter number 22 is one of the uh, probably most famous of the passages dealing with Abraham and Isaac. And it comes to a time that Abraham is called by God to take Isaac, his beloved son, the son of promise, the son through whom all the promises were supposed to be fulfilled. And he says, Abraham, take Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice on the mount that I will show you. 
And it says Abraham got up early the next morning. He didn't put it off. That was that night. And he rose up first thing in the morning. He says, okay, Sarah, me and Isaac has to go take care of some business. We're leaving. And so they took off on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. And as they are there, by this time, Isaac would have been probably in his teens. He wasn't just a little kid, but he probably would have been in his teens. And whenever they get there, they leave the servants at the bottom of the mountain and they climb up the mountain and Isaac has the wood on his back, okay, climbing the mountain to the place where he is supposed to die. And so in this, we see one of the most perfect pictures of Christ, not only that he was the promised son, that he was the one through whom salvation and the promises was going to come, but now we see him foreshadowing Calvary to a T. And so God is allowing Abraham to see what God himself is going to go through in about 1,500 or 2,000 years after that. And so the father takes his beloved son to offer up as a sacrifice. And Abraham makes the entire journey knowing what's going to happen, but doing it by faith. And so he gets to the bottom of the mountain, as I said a minute ago, and he leaves the servants behind, just as Jesus went to the cross by himself, just him and the Father, right? Remember how Peter and the disciples all abandoned him? So the servants were left behind and just Abraham and Isaac ascending the mountain. And Isaac took the burden upon his back just as Jesus carried the cross. And not only did he carry the cross, he was laying down with our sins. He took that burden upon his back and he started to bear it up the mountain. And so he looked at his father. Isaac looked at his father. And he says, I see the fire. I see the wood. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Telling us that Isaac was familiar with how all this worked. He had seen this happen before. He knew what was going on. And he says, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds and says, God will provide himself a lamb. Right? God will provide himself a lamb. Chapter 22, verse number 8. It doesn't say he'll provide a lamb for himself. It says he will provide himself a lamb. And it seems to me through reading this that Isaac wasn't stupid and Abraham wasn't withholding, that there was almost a knowing glance between the two of them. Isaac knew he was the lamb. He knew he was the one that God had provided. And so Isaac obedient to the will of his father, ascended the mountain with the father, and he got to the place, helped him to make the altar, helped him to lay the wood out on the altar, and then I believe Isaac laid on top of the altar and volunteered his hands and feet to be bound. You say, well, you're reading too much into it. Abraham would have been about 115 to 120 years old. Isaac would have been a teenage boy full of strength and vigor at the time. He was the one carrying the wood for the sacrifice, and it wasn't a, a bag of kindling, okay? He was a strong boy. Abraham was an old man. If he didn't submit to it willfully, Abraham could not have offered him up, right? And so he submitted to the will of the Father, even the death of the cross, right? And he laid down there, willing and trusting his father. And he says, if this is what God is demanding of you, then I will submit to it. And he willingly offers himself as a sacrifice. 
And so the father draws back the knife. He's ready to plunge it through the heart of his son. And the angel steps in and says, whoa, far enough. You've proven yourself. After all of this time and all of this growth, you came to the place where you are willing to give even the thing that you love the most. Even the thing that means the most to you, you will not withhold anything from God. And so this was a test, not because God didn't know the character of Abraham and the place of his heart in his head, but this was more than anything a test for Abraham so that he could see that God was a God that he could trust. We found earlier that God considered Abraham to be his friend. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you the privileged position of showing you what no one else knows, what no one else has ever went through. I'm going to have to go through this same thing, and I'm going to give you a glimpse. I'm going to let you enter in to this with me, seeing what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to offer up my beloved son for this world, only I'm actually going to have to go all the way through with it. So there's almost a camaraderie between Abraham and God. There's this friendship. There's this knowing. It's like he is sharing in what God is going through. Isn't that kind of cool? And so Abraham goes to this place. He's willing to offer up his son. He would have followed through with it. In Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse number 15 or 19. I can't remember. 19. Uh, it tells us that Abraham was doing it because he believed God. He trusted God to the place where he knew that God, if he followed through with this, that God had to raise Isaac from the dead. And so his faith had grown throughout his lifetime. And now in his twilight years, now whenever he is almost finished, he says, God has proven himself time and time again. I am willing to put God to the test. Even to the point of my own son. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, don't forget, we're talking about Isaac. Isaac has just watched his dad try to kill him. Right? Imagine walking home. What was that about up on top of the mountain, Dad? Right? But he was submitting to it. He was trusting him in it. And so at that point in time, the angel stops him, and they hear a goat caught by his horns in a thicket. They hadn't heard the goat before then, or the ram before then, and rams don't get caught in thickets. That's where they live. That is their playground, okay? If you try to go through it, you're going to get caught, but a ram's not going to. But God saw fit to make that ram get caught in the thicket. And God showed Abraham that he was willing to accept a substitute. This is where Isaac moves from being a type of Christ to being a type of Christian. It goes from being Jesus to being us. And we can identify with him because Isaac was the one that was supposed to die and there was another one that died in his place. And so could you imagine Isaac's feelings and his emotions? We don't like getting caught up too much in emotions and stuff. But could you imagine whenever he saw that ram and he heard that he didn't have to die, that he could go free, that there was another that was going to die in his place? He probably ran up and hugged that thing's neck if it let him. Right? And as he was sitting back and he was watching his dad slice and dice on that thing, He's thinking, that was supposed to be me. It was supposed to be me. Imagine how thankful he was for that substitute. How thankful he was for that ram. 
And so he was able to go free because God provided himself a lamb. God provided a substitute. And so for each and every one of us, we were supposed to die. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the provided lamb. John called out and said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. God provided a substitute. I was meant to die. I was meant to go to hell. But Jesus died in my place. There was a ram. Right? And so we see that played out. Uh, He pictured Jesus all the way up to the place where he went to the cross. But then Jesus got on the cross in our place. Right? Now if we continue this picture. I told you we're stopping in 22. We'll stop in 24. Okay? Stop in 24. Because the, the parallel doesn't end there. Because now we find that Isaac has maintained his relationship with his father, okay? That tells me that Abraham's faith had been transferred. It tells me that it was sincere and it was genuine, that Isaac didn't cut and run after this happened. Because I'll tell you what, if I tried to kill one of them, they would get as far away from me as they could, right? But... Isaac doesn't try to get away from his father because he believes in the God of Abraham. And so we find just a little while later, Sarah has died. And in chapter number 24, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, this was probably Eleazar of Damascus they talked about earlier. We don't know for sure. But he said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and unto my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land, must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou camest. And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou not that thou bring not my son thither again, the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying unto thy seed, while I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath, only bring not my son thither again." And so we find now that the father is seeking a bride for his son. And so he sends his servant to obtain a bride for his son. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? The father, God, sent his servant, the Holy Spirit, to the far country, this world, to obtain a bride, the church, for his son, Jesus Christ, right? And so the Spirit is still in the world today, drawing a bride unto his son. But you notice it says here that the servant was concerned and says, what if she's not willing to come? And Abraham said, if she refuses to come, then you are quit of the oath. So what does that mean for us? As the Holy Spirit is in this earth drawing a bride unto Christ today, man has the ability to reject and to refuse And if they do, it's on their own head, right? Mm -hmm. And so even Isaac, all the way up to this, 
Isaac is a picture of Christ as the servant goes to draw out a bride from the far country to bring unto him. He's not returning. He's not coming to get it himself. And Jesus, for a time, is not in this earth. He is not present here. He is with the Father, waiting for the Spirit to gather his bride, which he is going to one day meet in the air, right? And if we continue following through chapter number 24, he is out in the field, tending to his flocks, and the Spirit comes bringing the bride to him. They meet together for the first time. They celebrate in their marriage, and they are bound together eternally, right? And so I told you in the beginning of this that Isaac is one of the best types of Christ in Scripture, one of the most thorough types. And have you seen it as we went through this? How many ways that he illustrates Jesus and salvation and Christianity in the church? Now, I'm not saying that he is a perfect type and that everything in his life points to Jesus, because guess what? He messes up. He makes mistakes. Jesus doesn't. Okay? But there's so many things here that illustrate for us the way that God works in our life, in our world, through himself, through his salvation, through his spirit, right? And so through all of this, we find that salvation has always been a work of God. Salvation has never been about the works of man. That God has planned it from the beginning. It's not plan B. He didn't create the world and then Adam sinned and he said, oh no, what do we do? Because Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As God was creating all things, as Jesus was creating all the things, because John tells us that without him was not anything made that was made, right? As they were creating all things, they knew that Calvary stood in the future. They knew that the church stood in the future. They knew that you and I would be gathered here in March, whatever day it is, I lost track, in Ireland, depending upon the work that he has done to restore us unto himself because we are sinful, we are tainted, we are contaminated. There is nothing that we can do, no works of righteousness, which we have done, that could ever save us and that we must come to him and him alone, accepting his promises by faith, and that pleases him. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. But with faith, all things are possible, right? And so hopefully in this study, uh, I'm showing you so many different ways, but it all comes back to the same thing. God has one plan. He has one program. He has one way. And we either accept it by faith or we attempt to establish our own righteousness and we miss the ball completely. And it's been that way from the very beginning. And the choice is ours. And that's the only thing that is ours. The choice. It's not the righteousness. It's not the works. It's not the plan. It's not anything to do with it, except for God says, this is how it's going to be. Do you trust me? Do you believe what I have told you, what I have showed you? So, does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at tonight? Melody's got some arguments.
Okay, well, if there's nothing else, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If Peter, if you're still looking at stuff, then we can still address it here in a minute. But anyway, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. And we, we thank you so much for your word and how full of truth it is and how we can look at it from the beginning to the end, from the very first passages, from the very first book. You have clearly revealed to us your plan of salvation. You have revealed to us uh, where we stand with you, Lord, and what you've done in order to bring us to yourself, in order to restore us unto yourself. And Lord, I know that uh, if we miss it, it's just, uh, it's our fault entirely because you've made it so plain. Lord, help us just to trust you and just allow you to be God. Help us to grow in our faith, Lord, as Abraham did. And Lord, that may us uh, may we at the end of our lives uh, trust you more and more and more uh, to where we're willing to trust you with even our our most prized, even our most important things, and not withhold anything from you. Lord, we thank you so much for all you do, and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.